Relating to Self. A podcast that helps you create a better relationship with yourself. Hey, I'm Joachim. Welcome. Do you realize that there is only one relationship that you will always be in? The relationship with yourself. Improving that relationship changes everything. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and I invite real people to have vulnerable conversations about how they relate to themselves and what we can learn from that. After today's episode, this is what I said. Thanks, Meg. Oh, that was so good. (laughs) So keep listening. Meg, it's so good of you to join us. Ah, such a pleasure for me as well. Thank you so much for having me, for inviting me to join you. Yes, so we are here on the Relating to Self podcast, a podcast that speaks about how you relate to yourself and what we hopefully can learn from that to improve our own relationships with ourselves. And I always start with the same question, relating to self, what does that mean to you? What comes up when you hear those terms? The very first thing that comes up for me is you know, we, we talk so much about relationships, right? And we tend to forget how much of any relationship, not just with other people, but to places and situations and contexts, actually are 100% based on, on how we relate to ourselves. In, in my case, I guess, um, this, this is something that has changed a lot over the last couple of years, especially. And so for me, what comes up on top of what I just said is, uh, the, the tremendous change that you can see when, when you sort of choose to relate to yourself before relating to any, anyone else or anything else, before choosing what to do about anything else or anyone else. How, how are you treating you in this context? If you were to look at this episode or this situation from, it's a phrase that I love to use, like from the gaze of the universe. Um, so that's the first thing that comes up for me. I really love two things in there. It's like the first is, this idea of relating to yourself first before then relating to others or other things. And the other thing I find fascinating, I think is the first time that someone answered this to, to this question, is that you mentioned also relationship to things and spaces and concepts, I guess. So I would love to dive into both, um, if you don't mind. So maybe first, uh, let's go to this idea of relating to yourself as the first layer of relationship before you relate to other things. How does that feel in, in your life and how do you navigate that first level of relating to yourself? In a very clumsy way. <laughs> Does that count? <laughs> <laughs> um, jokes aside, like, um, I also want to make sure that, of course, when we say uh, relate to yourself first, I don't mean that in circumstances or situation yourself should be valued more or seen more or considered more than others. I don't, I don't mean that. I mean when you are trying to read or when i am trying at least in my case to read a situation uh, or how something or someone quote unquote makes me feel what really is happening is that i have my own scripts and my own filters and my own lenses of reading reality so in my case unless unless i choose to relate to myself first to really check in Uh, which at the the beginning is quite tough, right? You are in a situation and you need to respond somehow, sometimes quite quickly, and and develop this muscle of like checking in quickly with yourself and understand if you are, or in my case, if if I am in any way assuming a posture that is 
disempowering for me or that is based on scripts that I've been literally sitting down with and working on for the past months or years or if I am um, reacting or reading the situation from a version of Meg or an archetype of Meg that I know I'm trying to, to lay down um, gently but to lay down to understand that that way of operating in the world didn't did serve me if I assumed that character, if I assume that archetype, that posture, that the way of operating means that my body, my behavior needed it for what I, you know, my, my brain or whatever, consider my own survival and my own way to, to make it somehow. So the moment in which I, I know, and in my case is very much true, there are very specific versions of Meg that have served me a great deal, but I'm really much working on the fact to lay them down. To, to relate to myself means to check in first if I am in any way standing uh, or embodying um, any of those uh, and choose differently. Um, I had to also develop the capacity to, to pause, to choose that I have the power and the right to get back to people 24 hours later or a week later if I need to, um, or 10 minutes later. Uh, that is really something um, that became crucial for me to learn to relate to myself in a different way um, and on these new grounds uh, and it wasn't easy for someone like me <laughs> mm, yeah I hear you I, d I don't think it's really easy for, for anyone but I guess for specific people like if you're particularly prone to being sensitive and care about what the world you know feels then I guess it's even more difficult I'm, I'm really curious this idea of checking in with yourself first if you have a practice for this, what does that look like? Um, again, this is a fascinating question because um, I find myself in a very, I mean, I wonder if anyone is not in a moment of transition about, about right now, the, you know, March 2022, <laughs> for, for anyone listening, if, you, if you're not in a transition moment, please let us know. We'd love to have uh, an exchange. Uh, in my case, I am in a deep transformative and transitional moment, so it varies quite a lot. Um, for sure, the practice that I cannot um, deny to myself or I cannot not have in my days uh, is moments of silence in the morning to make sure that I'm stepping into my day not anymore from a place of I need to conquer, I need to power through, I am late. I had this, this thing like run my life for a very long time. I am late. I don't know what I was late for. I'm not yet. Luckily, I managed to distanciate myself most of days, um, if not almost always right now, from that. So first half an hour, hour of the day, when I, when I can, even a couple of hours, if I can do sport, that really forced me, not forced me, because the point of it is not forcing me to do anything, but allows me and holds space for me to not be too much in my head head anymore like and, and really learning to go to the other what, what I call the other centers of knowledge that we all carry um, and, and really the body as well for someone like me that is a former athlete for sure it was something that was used for the purpose of being an athlete but not necessarily as a center of knowledge to read how, how I actually felt about things and what my body says about things and situations and people uh, and the second practice that I am uh, actually carrying on since quite some time already, like a few months at least, is 
this idea of any time that I find myself in my head is as if I do a check-in and I feel, okay, where is most of my energy right now? And if most of it is in my head and I feel that I'm operating from the space, it's just thinking about it like a, to drop that flow of energy towards the chest or the rest of the body and see if there is anything else that comes up as a response or as a perspective or as a thought about anything that I'm experiencing, an email I just got or a situation that I'm in. Um, these two things and the pause, the pause that I was, I was uh, mentioning earlier, which is one that um, a practice, if you want, that I learned about and started embodying or integrating in 2020. Um, and I remember quite sharp because it was right in the middle of the pandemic. Um, these three things I would say are my go-to like tools when it comes to relate to myself first when, when anything comes up. Beautiful. Yeah, great. I want to also tune into this idea that you mentioned that, you know, you relate to previous versions of yourself because you know that those existed in the past to keep you safe or to help you navigate things. And well, one thing I would like to share is that I have a, a similar practice and I even have this visualization that one day came up while I was meditating that I sometimes now choose consciously to engage in, which is something like I just sit and I'm meditating and then I imagine in front of my body all the younger versions of myself sitting in a line and behind my body, all the older versions of myself sitting in a big line. So this is kind of like a line through space and time almost where like all versions of myself are present. And I just try to like hold space for, for all of that, which, which really helps me also connect to this idea of me not being only now, but being all versions at yeah. the same time. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm curious also, like, how, how that looks for you. How do you feel those other versions of Meg inside of you? What, how do they become apparent in your life? So it, it's so interesting uh, the way you, you know, you visualize it, this idea of forward and, and you know, in the past or, or you know, behind you. Um, I have this thing that is, is becoming a, a thing for me and, and for a few friends, uh, sometimes even clients, etc. I call it the Council of the Twelve. Um, and it, the number is completely made up, but it comes, uh, you know, all, all the relatable concepts from the 12 nights. It doesn't matter. For me, it's like a board meeting, like a council. Um, and these 12 versions, like the 12 megs are seated there. Some, some of them are more, uh, you know, these characters that are based more of my childhood bones or my uh, reactive uh, or warrior-ish archetypes that I, that I carried and I wore on my own skin for so long. Because... I do know where some of them started to be one of my go-to characters or masks, not masks in the sense of hiding, but like personas to wear. Uh, but I also know that especially those that I carried and, and wear, and I've, I've been wearing for a very long time, I don't think you can just erase them, nor that we should. Like the idea is to integrate whatever way of operating that we have with something that feels either more true to ourselves right now or healthier or less reactive. So I have I have this concept of the Council of the Twelve, and sometimes um, I literally have these situations when I I imagine what you know I imagine is not even the right word for it because I sort of think that it's more like I perceive exactly what the twelve different mags like want to say or where do they stand on something, and there is these situations in which absolutely all of them agree is like a no <laughs> sharp no or sharp yes or whatever. And then in situations I absolutely know, you know, the mega entrepreneur and, you know, go through uh, anything, go through flames, power through, would say this, or all these different, you know, the judge uh, or 
the uh, the surfer and the lover of nature, which is like quality of time is most important thing in life. They they all have their own stand on things. In some in some situations, they're on the same side of the table. In others, they aren't, like any other council, I guess. So I have this I have this concept, and I and I apply it a lot, both in my uh, personal life or when I speak with friends. Sometimes even at work, when I need to explain the way most leaders feel about this paradigm, uh, and it's the same. Like uh, we have old versions of ourselves that took stands for things that we might not want to prioritize right now, but they still, they're still part of our personality. They still get to have a voice and, and to provoke reactions. Uh, so the Council of the Twelve is my, is my way. Beautiful. I love that image of this Council of Twelve. Like, I sometimes call my inner voices my kindergarten because a lot of these voices are, <laughs> well, very young versions of myself and the, their voices are kind of a bit, like they come from, from fear or from very basal kind of instincts. So, but I, I like this idea of the council of self. It sounds very like sacred. I mean, in I, some like, way. I like to, exactly. I like to think that it's, it's a very sacred place. Everybody is welcome. Even the most wounded Meg, even the most um, triggered Meg, uh, even the most insecure Meg. And I also like to think that it's a council. So they, they're all there because they, they want the same things. Uh, and then my, have learned over the years and sometimes not even wanting to but they might have learned over the years different ways to go there or to get it and and this council somehow is this space this sacred space for sure where i try to integrate over the years the the other voices or the other ways of of knowing how to get from a to b whichever a to b um so yeah and i'm curious also because for me I have a very similar concept of like how I operate from the inside, but I think what feels important to me is that I give all those voices space and I hear them, but then I also kind of make a point of making my decisions from a different place, right? My decisions come from what I would call like the adult in me or the mature self or whatever you want to call it. And so I'm, I'm listening to the voices, I'm giving them space, and then it's me who decides. So I'm curious in this council of 12, if there is this one figure, maybe like Meg, the, the mature woman that you are now, that then kind of calls the shots in the end? Uh, it's such a tricky question for me. I mean, it's not a tricky question, but it's a, it's one that I, I struggled with for a while because um, my own story and my own journey made me be adult very early. So in fact, for me, it became a double-edged sword. I was, um, without even noticing or without even knowing, which means that you are very responsible and mature and adult way earlier than you're supposed to be, but you don't feel like that. So you also feel like the misfit and that something is wrong with you. So without the perks, no perks whatsoever of my being adult so early. Um, so I had to grow up and to, and to be adult in very early age. And also I always had, um, and this is my family that tells me this very like, all the soul type of way of operating in the world. Um, so for me, it became a double-edged sword because when I entered a phase of my life in which what was, what was running me and my operating system was survival, um, the judge and the surgeon, Meg, uh, were my way of somehow shaping a path of discipline and a path that I would make sure that would forcefully point me in uh, what I wanted to be safer and safer 
conditions. And, and that being adult, that being grown up, that, that judge and surgeant, that disciplined, um, okay, you are 14 or 23, it doesn't matter, you still have to, and you know what it's, what, you know what's needed to be done, you, you must do that. Um, that adultness um, version uh, of, of Meg was someone that I, was a version of me, and it's, of course, it is very, very much present in my life, that I actually needed to turn down the volume to a little bit. Um, and I'm still struggling with that. I, I think that when I want to really, I, I published a piece recently with a personal reflection. Um, it is, is around the concept of the center of honesty, like the center of gravity, but a center of honesty of, of how we can connect with that in different situations. And while normally in the past I would go to the adult Meg to take decisions because I couldn't afford anything else. Because if I would have gotten or I would have given the, the chair's seat to uh, Playful Mag or uh, Explorer, Explorer Mag, and, and something would have happened, which is what life is about, no one or nothing was there to cover me. And so I couldn't afford to give the chair to those Mags. And I still struggle with that very much, but I also don't want anymore the chair to be solely possessed and taken over by Surgeant Meg or Judge Meg, um, or I can do it on my own Meg. That's a very big one as well. Uh, so I give it to, I don't know how to explain it. Like, I don't know if it happens to you, but sometimes we go through very transformative experiences. And uh, I recently came back from a very big one for me um, with an indigenous community in the Amazon rainforest. And I, I came to understand that sometimes when we are developing a new muscle within ourselves, a new, a new character, if you want, or a new way to operate in the world, there is a moment in which, a moment or a period in which you sort of lean on someone else who already operates like that. I guess that's what happens with a therapist or a coach as well. And you somehow first draw from them and from their power that way of using tools, certain tools in a certain way. And then little by little, if of course the coach and the therapist stand for you know, empowerment and not codependency, which sadly is not what happens in many cases, but then little by little you sort of develop your own way of, of acquiring those tools, integrating them and applying them on your own. So recently, since I'm back, and I've been back for a little over a month, I have this archetype, like this Meg, um, that is integrating the way of the forest. It's a, it's a mix to me between the wisdom that I was held by in this, um, in this community, which very much feels like this, um, not even one, it's like this, it's a community vibe. It's, it's a type of uh, consciousness that takes in consideration at the very same time the self and the collective that doesn't see that as separated and it's uh, it's a language that I've studied to, to try to develop recently because it's not necessarily so it was not necessarily super easy for me to explain so it's more like this sort of it's a mix between these three grandmothers vibe um, that represents somehow the wisdom of the way of the forest that I was exposed to and held by and and taught and shown in so many different ways um, and, and, and a Meg that remembers that there is no separation whatsoever with the principles that I'm here to serve, that is not personal. And 
And this Meg is not the careless, joyful, we can break things, who cares, sort of childhood Meg that I, I actually didn't have for, for a very long time. It's not that. And it's not the judge and the super responsible one either. It's, it's um, I guess you, someone could call it more like uh, a wise or an elder without being old like in a technical, anagraphical way. I don't know, it's very much of a mix, but I call it the Meg that is integrating in the way of the forest or the voice of the way of the forest because that's, um, that's the latest experience for me that, that has shown me that other way of knowing. Beautiful, I love that. I would like to speak into how you beautifully shared about your adult self. I can very much relate, I mean, me too, um, I went through a phase of parentification, you know, as a very young child, I was kind of holding the space as a, as a parent would. So I was, I was an adult functionally in what I was supposed to do. And I guess I also knew how to perform as an adult. But now I think I would like to make the difference for myself between my adult self that indeed was, you know, too young. And then that leads to the kind of I would say maybe control freakish behavior, um, knowing what needs to be done and doing it, showing up to like what real life demands. And there's a difference between that and what I would now call my mature self. Mature as in having integrated my parts, having overcome my biggest fears, having accepted my shadows. And I think maybe, <laughs> you know, that relates to this new Meg that you've discovered through the way of the forest. And I think that's just one of the ways to get there. I think there's many, many ways to, to get to this place. I think, I guess we could call this concept something like the higher self. Would, would that be something that you can yeah. identify with? I, I think we could. Um, I think the Meg, uh, this is wiser or more mature Meg, um, is one that definitely has been you know, coming out of this experience with the way of the forest and many other experiences before, I, I think you don't get to this life, to this type of like intense transitions um, unless you have been building up on, on several attempts and several processes and journeys to, to reconnect your own dots and really go for your own reconciliation. Reconciliation is often used, you know, in the context of with others. And we go back to the very first question, right? Unless we are, we have reconciled with ourselves. And it's also a term they use in tech when you, when you have a very messy data set and you need to reconcile the data, like realign the things I, that's very much what it feels like. A more reconciled version of myself where the different sources of information and, and pieces of myself and, and corners of my inner being are not that fragmented or, or ashamed anymore. They can connect to the whole and, and show up in the way they're meant to, um, building on new muscles uh, and, a new, and a new way of, of wearing our own self and our own skin, because we don't really have any other choice. <laughs> Beautifully put. Yeah, I agree. I would like to go back to what you shared in the beginning when we started exploring this question of relating to self, this idea of also including your relationships to things, to spaces, to concepts and, you know, not people. And I think that's really interesting. I've, I've recently been exploring this for myself 
as as a larger from a larger perspective this idea that actually almost all of my relating and i use this word in the most broad sense possible like how i relate to things people anything almost all of my relating is actually relating to myself and what i am relating with in myself is the story i have about people objects things concepts it's the images i have about people things objects concepts and so on and so the only time when i am not relating to myself is when i actually am engaging and present to someone in the now which for example right now i feel like i am relating to you meg because you're here well i mean almost on a screen but we're communicating we're exchanging information and so the things i perceive about you now kind of flow from you to me and of course i still have a whole story of who meg is and all the things i know about you and then you know just what i perceive but in general when i'm relating to things or people or concepts that are not here right now the real relating there is always with myself and so i'm curious how you see this relationship between yourself and objects concepts spaces and other things from the perspective of relating to self well i i guess that our whole experience of life on this planet is based on stories and interpretations of stories an interpretation of a situation is a story at the end of the day and there is no way to interpret anything uh, as what a thing is or what value it has or what a situation is about or where a circumstance um is leading to or whatever without also relating to self because even when theoretically the story is not about ourselves which can be the case for example these days with the conflict uh, between Ukraine and Russia etc we always are placing our consciousness in very precise coordinates of that story which can be as simple as you know I'm an observer because this doesn't touch me theoretically from my perspective and based on the story I have I'm just an external element to a story that is unfolding that I'm not part of which if we dig a little bit deeper also holds very clear beliefs of of who someone is like if if you in a conflict like this feel like you know i am part and i want to be part in any way i can and help these and that and another person living in the same place from the same culture same age feels very much like an observer and this is not something i'm part of and i'm either not qualified or by getting involved and not knowing enough i am um, actually not helping and and quite the opposite whatever story like there is thousands and thousands of different versions it always also holds very clear coordinates and characteristics or attributes to who we are i am a person that given a conflict anywhere in the world will set aside her own or his own life uh, to do anything in my power to help those who suffer. This is a very precise story. Another one is I am someone that whatever happens anywhere in the world, close or, or far, I will analyze if my want my desire to be important and contribute actually is creating value for those involved, for example. And so on and so forth and I'm not saying that one is better than the other and there is millions more. but whatever is our reading of a situation or the value of a thing or even a concept puts us in very precise coordinates and if we sit down with that long enough we can understand what is the role they were trying to play 
And again, if that is the role that we want to play, if that those are the ideas of ourselves that we want to keep holding, and who gave us those ideas? Because most of the time, it's not even ourselves. That is so interesting, and that brings me to a thought that I'm super curious to explore with you, which is something like, you know, there's a saying, all models are wrong, but some models are useful. I believe the same holds for stories. All stories are wrong, some stories are useful. For me, what it comes down to is to be intentional and precise about the stories that I choose to engage with. So my question would be, how do you, Meg, choose which stories you hold at the center of your being or that you live your life by? You mean stories of myself or stories in terms of what should I get involved, like their roles to play? I think those kind of are the same. It could be. Like in the end, the story of self is a, is a combination of all those narratives of like, what do I think is important? What do I value? What I want to do? Yeah. What 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 can I create in the world? Right. That's all part of of the story of you. From my oh, perspective. for sure. And and what you said about all models uh, are useful. I'm sorry, some models are useful. It's also a similar phrase that I use sometimes. All interpretation of a story are valid, but only a few are empowering for the people involved. Um, you know, you, you can have what, what someone would call an abuser and a victim and other cultures on the planet that I'm, I can't say I'm close to would say, those are two organisms out of balance. One is taking too much by force and the other one is giving too much without thinking they're worth receiving. So those are a perfect match to one another. We call it abuser and victim because we want to find someone to blame, but for some cultures on the planet, um, those are two organisms, both out of balance, which is why they match each other, and both they need adjustment for that not to happen. Um, back to the back to the question that you asked me, I would say that I very sharply switched the stories that I hold at the core of my being over the last few years. Historically, um, Historically, the main stories or roles to play would be whatever there is to be done. Anything from we gathered with friends and there is dishes to be washed or um, there is causes of, you know, ch challenges in the social impact and sustainability space to be sorting out. Whatever it's happening, you must do anything in your power to do something about it. Like you must show up, you must take responsibility, you must um, load yourself as much as you can and to the limit. And uh, and another one that I discovered that was, you know, it's like a little hidden script in my software that I found not too, too long ago. Also make sure to sabotage your attempts. So you must, <laughs> you must take on as much as possible, and at the same time, probably um, because of this other script, these make sure to sabotage, because when you wear Meg flowing with your gifts or exploring your passions, you are so, so heavily judged and isolated and rejected that this script, like this attached script also, will make sure though to sabotage yourself, then the other story, the one of taking up as much as possible became even more relevant because if you take up too much, of course you're not gonna be able to succeed. 
and succeed in a very broad sense, right? Even just enjoy life or, uh, you know, if, if you're taking up too much, you can end up in a burnout or you can always be in anxiety because, of course, you're trying to make way too much at the same time or you're taking up stuff that isn't even yours. So you're trying to solve things that are definitely not in your control or you're stressing out to do things that are not necessarily to be fallen on, on your lap of responsibility and so on, so on, so on. So those historically are amongst the stories that I would um, hold in my center. And right now I am practicing with the concept of orioki, actually, from Japan. is like how much is enough. Like in this moment right now for how much strength or energy I feel in myself for how my body is feeling, for how my heart is feeling. If I trust that I'm always put in situations that are meant to give me and receive from me in a very specific way that is not always the same, what is, what is the, the way that feels just right for this moment? Which could include me packing my stuff and saying, guys, I'm sorry, I need to go home. In, in the middle of a gathering, not even when there is dishes to wash, evidently. Um, so the story I'm holding in my, in my chest, and I guess if I had to summarize it or try to put a title to it, is what, what is right right now? Can I trust that there is all the signs that I need to understand what's my best contribution to this and, and what's the best contribution of this to me? Um, and, and learn to read that, that boundary, learn to exercise it as well. Um, definitely still sort of clumsy at it, <laughs> but I'm on my way, I guess, as most of us. Yeah, I love that you mentioned this, all the idea of boundaries, which is like so important. And that you especially also named this idea of like reading the boundary or like feeling the necessity for a boundary, but then also actually honoring it, expressing it. Those are two very different things. And I had to find that <laughs> yeah. out the hard way. <laughs> right. So that's really interesting. And that also brings me to my next subject, because I'm really curious about this. I, I have a story about you. I have a, an idea about you, that you are someone who is very driven, who is always like thinking deep thoughts who is always learning new things, who is always creating, writing your newsletter, doing things, being everywhere at the same time. And I'm really curious because now you mentioned this concept of what is enough. I think that's a beautiful question. And I'm really curious how you relate to the mundane. Because this is something I've explored for myself that has brought me great joy. And that is just very simply to accept the mundane as a necessary and beautiful component of life. And I'm really curious if, if you have that at all, because in my story of you, there seems there's no space with you for the mundane. <laughs> I love it. Um, I'm very early stage in my exploration of the mundane. Um, in some ways, though, because, for example, I've always been... But historically, in the last years, I always liked, for example, to rely on my friends or my partners when I had uh, one on on exploring that. And it was it would be the mundane in the sense of like romance and experiences to do together or um, electronic music festivals, which has always been something that I that I loved. But I, as you said, it's very true. Like I'm, I'm very driven. I always probably also partially because I was run by the surgeon. I always um, 
prioritize the things that I wanted to create in, in the world. And I know that it sounds very cheesy and Instagram ready. It's exhausting. That's the reality of it. Because when you're driven by the honest desire to do something for the things that you care about or, or just express the things that you carry within, um, it can be, you know, it can be very, how can you say this? Like it can take everything out of you because this is not an end ever. And and I definitely have fallen into that story, the, this so glorified story in the startup world, especially of you know work constantly at any cost because you're always fighting against time in a timeline that I, I'm not sure who said, but it's definitely it wasn't me. And so. I've always had these like more mundane things, but I never dedicated or allowed much space to it. Uh, and then 2021 arrived for me. I it was a year watershed, definitely a watershed year where I have been um, invited because I didn't have this time. I didn't need a divine storm to come and show me that another way was possible. Um, but I was invited to really turn off the way that I normally would take decisions, the way that I normally would um, choose which way to go and really flow and follow the signs, which is not necessarily the same as the mundane, but it did create a lot of space for it. Because when I, when I started not running with to-do lists or project management softwares and nine to five or eight to eight, uh, ways of, of staying in front of the computer or in front of my journal and doing meaningful things. Because I, I, I am, quote-unquote, that lucky. It's not luck. I, I chose it and, and it costs many things. But I, when I'm in front of the computer and, or, or my journal, most of the time I'm doing things that compel me, at the very least. Not all easy, not all I know how to do them, um, but they compel me. So to start not running with that, create a space for the mundane, and it's, um, it's interesting because I felt very, oh, what's the word for it? Clumsy is one way, but also like very, it all felt very new, and, and I felt very much out of my depth, because I, I do enjoy more intense or more deep or more meaningful things. At the same time, I'm also used to it. Right. So I right now, my relationship, my relating, as you said, to, to the mundane is switch any time that I find myself in control or analysis or is this right or wrong? I, I switch to adventure and curiosity It's like, what if this is just about being curious? Nothing has to be figured out. Uh, maybe I discover like many people on this planet that that type of mundane is not for me. For instance, I, find, I studied fine arts. I studied fine arts for close to, I would say, ten years because already was art was already part of my high school studies. And my idea of mundane is not going to museums or art exhibitions. It just doesn't resonate with me, unless it is an artist that I really, really love. To check out the latest exhibition in town just because is not a way of mundane that fulfills me, for whatever reason. Um, so right now I'm in exploratory mode, I would say. I, I had a phase where I tried to adopt other ideas, others' ideas of mundane, probably everybody in the attempt of belonging. Um, but that didn't work either. It never does, really. 
So right now I'm in exploratory mode and figuring out or trying to figure out, okay, what does it feel good right now? Uh, how can you be in a room of people? And it, it happened quite a lot recently, especially with my prolonged um, staying in Milan. A room full of people and a city very much about specific types of mundane. And be curious and enjoy yourself, but still not lose yourself in the process. Because um, that's the overcompensation that sometimes I risk to go to. Because uh, for so long I've been devoted, a devoted um, disciple of the surgeon. Um, and the and the and the entrepreneur, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, curious, clumsy, exploratory. <laughs> That's my relating with a mundane at the moment. Beautiful. I love it. I wish you lots of curiosity. <laughs> Meg, this is amazing. This is lovely. Um, we could talk for quite a bit more, I think, but we're close to the end of this podcast. Unfortunately, there's one more question I would like to ask you, which is also a tradition by now. And that is, if there was one question that we would have loved to answer, but I didn't ask you, what would have been that question? Oh, wow. Um, a question that you would have loved, that I would have loved you to ask me. Maybe, huh. I don't know why this comes up, but sometimes, and because of the type of energy and feel that you hold for people, they to speak with you. Uh, we don't have a space to talk about this. But maybe one question could have been, what is a version of yourself that you hold in shame for a very long time and that you now know is not shameful? There is nothing shameful about that. Beautiful question. Oh, thank you so much, Meg. That's so juicy. And of course, now I'm very curious what your answer to that would be. So if you could formulate that in like two minutes, that would be ideal. Um, so many, actually. So many. The, even the entrepreneur, Meg, that so many people hold on this pedestal, for me, especially after I realized the sabotage mechanism was a shameful one. And, it, and I would say, I cannot yet say it's not anymore. Um, then there was the, uh, the daughter that needed to escape her home due to domestic violence. For, again, such a hero or heroine story for so many people. For me, it was a shameful one because it was hurtful. And it always placed me in the rooms where I wanted to stay on one, two, three, four stairs below everybody else, at least in my perception or perspective. Um, a woman. In, in so many in so many environment, women that wouldn't fit in in aesthetical I you know concepts or ideas or ways in which you need to be. Um, I can think of so many examples, but I would say that these three are the ones, the first ones that come to mind. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. I'm just gonna like speak into that for a little bit. I think one thing that has helped me a lot when thinking about shame and how I feel shame for certain of my parts, I have changed my concept of shame from like a switch on off to something like a gray zone, right? It's not like, oh, this character I'm ashamed of and this one I'm not ashamed of. No, shame still exists in shades of gray. It's like I'm less ashamed than before and there's still a bit of shame there and that's okay because I'm moving in general. I'm moving towards being unashamedly myself. 
And I think that's interesting also to hold in mind. Like, you know, you can't just switch off shame. No, 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 you can't. I, uh, <laughs> I tried long enough and I know <laughs> that mm. it's not possible. For me, poetry, actually, and, and not in the sense of like someone else's poetry, but like this idea that you can have lenses of beauty and poetry in the midst of the most tremendously hurtful uh, and, and heartbreaking scenario. Because at the end, shame and guilt always come from, from distress, from a sense of hurt, from a sense of being not enough for someone that you, that you loved or someone as a collective that you want to belong with. So to see the poetry or the beauty in someone's story for me became a concept f since a few years already that prevented me to stay in any state of shame or guilt, uh, especially with others, much more easy. Um, but then forced me to do the same thing with myself, like what, what is the poetry, what is the beauty of a story? Um, and unless we find the beauty in my opinion, in my experience, the medicine that that story is meant to pour around on, on others' lives, on, on other situations, not necessarily as you know, big audience, it can be just your neighbors when she will tell you that she's going through X, Y, Z. Unless we find that poetry, unless we reconciliate with those uh, feelings of shame and guilt, we cannot pour the medicine that that story is meant to pour. And, and that became for me enough of an encouragement to keep looking for the poetry anytime that my brain tries to tell me that there is something shameful there. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Meg. This was a pleasure. For me as well, <sighs> Maria. Mm, wonderful. <laughs> well, um, before we part ways, one more thing. Where can people find you? Can they engage with you? Can they follow your story? Um, best uh, two channels slash three uh, my website megpagani.com uh, instagram meg underscore pagani um, linkedin i use it not that often but i do use it and yeah on my website there is all my contacts if someone wants to reach out as well beautiful i will make sure all of these are in the show notes and i highly recommend following meg's newsletter that is always a super interesting read meg thank you so much for your time and have a wonderful rest of your day no, thank you for having me. This was uh, really nourishing. Have you, you also have a wonderful day. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the podcast. You can also read more of my thoughts on Twitter. I will post a link in the description. And if you are interested in improving your relationship with yourself, please subscribe to my email list at relatingtoself.com. I will then send you meditations, rituals, practices, and more of these beautiful conversations. Thanks. Mm -hmm.